Hello. This week, the BBC finally gave one of our previous interviewees, Andy Webb, the redacted emails he went to the courts to obtain. These relate to an alleged cover-up by the BBC over the Martin Bashir Princess Diana interview. As the emails contain more words than war and peace, it will be some time before Andy has waded through them all, but I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't find that some of those he most wants are missing. Well, this week in the podcast, I'm delighted to be talking to someone who has been at the top of BBC News and at the heart of Downing Street. He is indeed a poacher-turned-gamekeeper. Sir Craig Oliver was editor of BBC News at 6 and 10, ran the BBC's coverage of the 2010 general election, and was the Downing Street Director of Politics and Communications under David Cameron. He wrote an account of those years, and in particular the Brexit referendum, in his well-titled book, Unleashing Demons. He is now a partner at FGS Global, and is on his third series of his podcast, Desperately Seeking Wisdom. Welcome to our podcast, Craig Oliver. What do you make of this latest uh, stage in the scandal over the Princess Diana interview, the emails that have finally, the BBC has finally released, though redacted? Is this scandal over the Princess Diana interview still hurting the BBC's reputation? I think it is. It's not as much as it has done in the past, but I think it is. The incident is one of the most shameful, if not the most shameful thing I think that's ever happened in BBC history. And I think part of the problem is the failure of the BBC over a successive um, period of time uh, to actually just acknowledge that. You've seen cover-up after cover-up after cover-up. I don't think that this is a cover-up in the same sense of people trying to pretend it never really happened and hoping it would all go away. This feels a bit more like a classic situation where the lawyers have got involved and said, oh, be careful, you don't want to give more away than you have to. And I think that that's almost always in these kind of circumstances bad advice. I think that actually in this circumstance you need to say, look, we need to be seen to be as transparent as possible. And the last thing that the BBC needs is to look like it isn't being transparent. And yes, that may bring about some more pain, but actually what's really important is trust in the BBC. And this is being used as a stick to beat the BBC again. And there are plenty of people wanting to wield the stick. I mean, it is quite intriguing. I, of course, have former BBC person, tend to be a bit sympathetic to them, a bit. Uh, and to look at the campaigns being run at the Daily Telegraph and the Mail, I mean, they're just looking for the next story to hit the BBC with. And uh, unfortunately, the BBC often provides them with it. But they're not uh, sort of balanced, are they, in this? They're on a campaign. There is a campaign against the BBC. Yeah, there is a campaign against the BBC. And I think that part of the problem is that the BBC puts itself into a defensive crouch all the time. It acts as if, oh, poor us, these nasty big media villains are coming up against us. And there is an element in which it is a campaign and they are deliberately trying to destabilise the BBC. I think that the BBC often fails to realise the power it has in that, the power in being as transparent as possible, the power of being the biggest media organisation in the UK, probably by a factor of 10. And actually, often its behaviour looks like it's defensive crouch, it's trying to trim. I think that one of the pieces of advice I would give to the people running the BBC at the moment is, look, we're in a world where you cannot trim. You have to be far more decisive. You have to say, yes, I hear what the legal people are saying to me, but there's some a bigger game to play here. I'm slightly surprised I'm not talking to you as the director of news, because when you look at your career, you worked, I say, for ITN, for Channel 4, Channel 4, Channel 5, you edited the 
general election coverage. You were run the BBC Six and the Ten, and you ended up as I think controller of all the BBC Global News. Um, and then you left. Let me just talk to you though about just before you left. When you came to the BBC, when you were in these senior positions, did you think the BBC was trying to be impartial? Not that it, it was always impartial. Do you think people were genuinely trying to be impartial? Or was the truth to this allegation that it was The Guardian on television? Well, look, I do think that the BBC does try to be impartial. And my experiences of most BBC journalists is that they want to be impartial. The big issue, though, with impartiality, and it's quite a danger as you end up in quite deep philosophical areas, is, look, it's, it's a goal that is almost impossible to achieve. You cannot be an impartial. You cannot be perfectly ba balanced and make sure that you get the balance of the argument across totally. And I think that the truth is that the BBC often ends up in a situation where it looks to shortcuts to impartiality. Often that shortcut is balance and that they end up in a situation where you probably end up magnifying and amplifying a view that probably doesn't deserve that. The phrase is actually due impartiality, giving people the impartiality that they are actually due. So the classic example of that is the climate change debate the vast majority of scientists, nearly pr approaching 100%, say climate change is real. Therefore, the BBC treats it as real. It does not say that there is some debate about whether a climate change is happening or not. The problem is, is that when you get to other areas where there is more of a balance of opinion, I experienced it on the other side of the fence when I was in government trying to help run the Remain campaign. And I felt very, very clearly that the BBC thought, this is a complete nightmare. We're just going to offer complete 50-50 balance and that's it, we're out. And that to me was not, it was mixing up balance with impartiality. Well, I agree with that, and I think that demonstrates also a lack of courage. I mean, it, BBC always, when it came to the general elections, and of course it's bound by very, various restrictions, it basically stopped doing original reporting, in my view, quite often, and simply says, uh, Conservatives say this, Labour say this, Lib said this, as if that was sufficient. And it didn't quite have the courage to say, you know, somebody's saying it's day out there, somebody's saying it's uh, night, I've just had a look, it's night. And when you came to Brexit, there was that collective, I think, lack of confidence to say, look, both sides are exaggerating, here we are, but these are some of the facts. And by the way, the first stage of the argument is, should we consider leaving? The second stage of the argument, which we never had, was, what are we leaving for? And the BBC yeah. didn't have the courage to say, what are the alternatives and are they better? It's interesting that you use the word confidence there. I think the difficulty with the BBC is it sometimes flicks between confidence, a lack of confidence and arrogance. I think quite often it doesn't step out there. It allows the agenda to be set by others who often have a very, very clear agenda. The newspapers in this country often have very clear agendas. Nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly legitimate. The problem is I think the BBC is massively overly influenced by that. One example that I thought was very, very telling was during the actually the 2015 general election campaign where I was director of, uh, director of uh, communications. Um, we had these endless debates about the fact that there was going to be a hung parliament, um, arguments about who was going to be in what position, what policy would we drop, that kind of thing. And we used to have these discussions with journalists all the time and we spent 37 journeys back and forth to the southwest having these endless debates and nobody ever said to us why are you going to the southwest 
And the real story of that campaign was actually, look, the Conservatives are trying to gobble up all the Lib Dem seats and probably have got a path to majority if they can. And that was what was interesting about that. The reason I'm telling that story is often that journalists get together and they all agree that there's a kind of story that they're going after, but actually they're missing the real one. And I think that the BBC quite often does that. The other word that I would just use quite quickly with the BBC, that's the lack of confidence. There's also sometimes the arrogance. When it does get itself into trouble, it can appear very blunt, overweening, um, dismissive. And it is that weird balance between the two. It's that it, it can be quite schizophrenic in terms of how it approaches these things. I must say that accords with, with a lot of my experience, but it doesn't accord with the view of very significant parts of the Conservative Party who believe that the BBC is far from impartial. And when I talked to Alan Rusbridger last week, he, um, on the back of his Prospect article, he looked at a, a claimed um, there would have been a concerted campaign by elements in the Conservative Party to do three things, which two of which they've achieved. First of all, to continually undermine and criticise the BBC. Secondly, to get a Fox-type news organisation going, i.e. GB News. The third thing they didn't succeed in pushing forward was political advertising. But one is struck by the consistent antipathy of members certain parts of the Conservative Party to the BBC, which is almost, how can I put, it's almost emotional. Did you face that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was less of an issue. I mean, the big moment in the Conservative Party in recent years was when Boris Johnson decided to chuck out the Liberal Conservatives, people like Ken Clark, David Gork, um, Amber Rudd, that kind of thing. And those are the kind of Conservatives that I felt much more comfortable with. And that was a big moment in the Conservative Party. There was a significant shift towards the populist right in the Conservative Party. And the populist right in the Conservative Party have always had an issue with the BBC. They love to tweak its nose. They love to bait it. They love to see it as a kind of bastion of wokery or right-thinking liberal prejudice. Personally, I never felt that and felt quite strongly that wasn't the case. And in fact, the administration that I was part of um, gave the BBC 11 years of inflationary rises, continued with the licence fee, protected the institution while occasionally tweaking its nose. I agree with Alan Rusbridger that it's gone further than that. I do think that he is on the fringes of a conspiracy theory um, in some of the stuff that he comes up with. He comes up with the name, obviously, of Robbie Gibb, who was uh, clearly, uh, when he worked as an editor in the BBC, people I've talked to say he was a very fair, unbiased editor, but he has a parallel career as a Conservative supporter. He's been very clear. He said he's a Thatcherite, he's Brexiteer, and so on. He was also uh, led the consortium that brought out, uh, brought out the Jewish Chronicle, which last week had an article by Melanie Phillips calling the BBC the Hamas Broadcasting Corporation. Yet Robbie is the key person sitting uh, on <laughs> judging whether the BBC is impartial or not. Is that true, Roger? I mean, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Like, you know, you build that case. Is 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 that he is the key person deciding on the BBC's impartiality? I am sympathetic deeply sympathetic to the BBC. It is a massively important institution that needs to be protected. I have no doubt about that. Personally, despite all the issues about the licence fee, I think it's the best way of funding it. We need to keep going forward with it. We need to find ways to fund it in other ways, but I would keep the licence fee going. I'm a supporter. I do think that there is a kind of naivety to the conspiracy 
around the BBC, uh, people in, in that they, they act as if the BBC should never be political or should never be tainted by politics. The chairman of the BBC has always, and Robbie Gibb is not that, has always been a political appointment. Why? Because when things get tense between an organisation that has the power that the BBC has, there needs to be somebody who can be a back channel to government. People might not like that, but it's a safety valve and it's worked since the beginning of the BBC. Robbie Gibb being on the board of the BBC, yes, I think that that's a debatable question, whether or not that person should be there. But the idea that he is sitting there calling the shots, the idea that he is ringing up the editor of the Today programme or the 10 o'clock news and demanding that they run certain things in a certain way is rubbish. They would tell him where to go. And, the, and I think we're in danger of creating a conspiracy theory here. Well, Alan Rochburn just said to, to us, Sir Robbie Gibb is the only person with editorial experience who sits in the ultimate um, judgment on BBC impartiality. What he meant by that, there's a committee of four people, I think, of the, of the board, which is very, very full of business people, but not full of a lot of people with journalistic or, shall we say, creative experience. There are four people on that board. The only two journalists on that, on that are... Um, the director of news, and Robbie Gibb. And Robbie Gibb does go on and talks about BBC having a problem impartiality, impartiality at the same time as he's allied with significant elements of the Conservative Party and at the same time as which he is, appears to be the owner of a newspaper which has one of the leading yeah. uh, people on it, Melanie Phillips, calls the BBC you've the Hamas a, Broadcasting you've, Corporation. You've, you've, definitely, you've definitely, definitely got a point, Roger. There, there is a point there. I don't deny that there's a point. What I'm denying or what I'm questioning in you is the extent to which that point is magnified and amplified. Give me one solid example of where the BBC has been found to be impartial when Robbie gives influences there. What example can you give? And the answer is none. Because actually the reality is that the BBC has checks and balances to whatever to make sure that that isn't the case. Um, so, yes, we can argue about whether or not it's appropriate that Robbie Gibb is there, but I honestly think that going to the stage of sitting, that he is sitting like a king, deciding impartiality and telling editors what to run and not to run, um, and that they are actually taking that seriously and acting on it, is simply not true, and we end up in a situation of suggesting that there is an absurd conspiracy theory rather than actually dealing with the complex, nuanced, messy reality of it. So if you were advising the Director-General, you were sitting on the board now and you were there in place of Robbie Gibb, uh, would you say, dial down a bit on this fascination with impartiality? There are a lot of good people in newsrooms desperately trying to do their best. This doesn't help them. Don't keep on about it. No, because I think that it is actually crucial. The BBC, the Britain is the only country in the world that has something like the BBC. All others are genuinely state broadcasters where the government can have an impact. You know, what happens in France is that when there's a change of president, then the people change at the top of the, the state broadcaster. That doesn't happen in the UK. And I think that the price for that is that people rightly scrutinise it and say, are you being impartial? Tim Davey himself, and I think a lot of people would say this, I'm, I am no fan of Brexit and I am no fan of the populist right in this country. But it is certainly true that over time, people who care about the BBC have looked at it and said, 
Have we got this right over time? Have we represented a very significant proportion of our population who have issues? One of the things while I was editor of the BBC uh, News at 6 and 10 was I commissioned Mark Easton, the Home Affairs editor, to do some pieces on tensions around public services and immigration, particularly in our coastal towns. Now, this was before Brexit, before UKIP, and before the idea that is very clear in British politics that coastal towns have a particular issue, they feel left behind, very, very supportive of Brexit, very, very worried about immigration. The BBC had paroxysms about us reporting on the fact that people in these areas felt that immigration was a problem. They thought it was racist. They thought it was like, why would you raise such an issue? Now, if you talk to anybody at the BBC, they would say, it was good that we started to have that conversation because we'd actually shut it down for too long. And I think it's legitimate to say that one of the reasons that Brexit actually happened was because we stopped talking about a lot of the things that turned out to be issues in the referendum. What I find quite amusing, though, about the attitude of some Conservatives to the BBC always thinking they're left liberal, is if you look at the people who worked in Downing Street doing your job, you were succeeded by Robbie Gibb. Uh, that was for yeah. Theresa May. Gitter Harry was helping out um, Boris Johnson. Uh, Allegra Stratton was then moved in, another BBC figure, didn't last for long. And indeed, another senior Newsnight figure actually married George Osborne. I suppose that's irrelevant, isn't it? But, yeah, there are certainly people at the BBC who... I mean, the reality is I was offered the job and I had to think very, very hard about whether or not I could work for a Conservative Prime Minister because actually the truth is a lot of people in BBC News try to put their political... Um, prejudices to one side and actually often try to overcompensate because of them. So, yes, that is true. I would say that it is true that the BBC has a kind of metropolitan, liberal, centrist bias within it. I don't say that to attack the BBC. I think it would, when in, if you have people in a quiet moment having a drink with them, they would accept that that is an issue. They are constantly trying to pull away from that. You know, when I was working at the BBC, very, very limited um, ethnic minorities in BBC News, actually very, very few people from working class backgrounds. Um, it was it was an issue. There was a kind of metropolitan liberal elite who weren't capable of necessarily looking at themselves and going, we see the world in a certain way. And actually others see it differently and that their view is legitimate and it deserves to be represented occasionally on our output. It's not because they're sitting there thinking, I must win this for the Labour Party or the Lib Dems or the Conservatives or the Scottish Nationalists. But it's, it's that unseen, unaware prejudice that we all have and all have to force ourselves to question. I find that a very convincing analysis. Um, can I turn to your post-Downing Street career? Uh, the, the brutality of British politics never ceases to astonish me. There you are at one moment having this absolutely central role in British government. Uh, then David Cameron walks out and decides that he is not the right person to take us out of Europe. He resigns. And what happens to you? Uh, they don't say to you, uh, Craig, you've got three months or six months to uh, wind down, find a new job, whatever. Presumably, you were out of Downing Street, what, within how many hours? Uh, you, when he goes, you go. Um, and literally, what happened was that there was a moment where there was the handover of power. And I remember it was a very emotional time where we, we watched 
David Cameron give his speech and then we were hugged the civil servants that we'd worked with very closely or I had worked with very closely for six years and were taken to the cabinet office which is linked to number 10 and as we were walking out of the cabinet office the new team was standing waiting to walk in and it literally says in your contract I mean not quite as bluntly as this but when he falls you fall um and so you're out and I think that that's that's the best way really you can't be any other way um but you say that six years was a long time and it was um an incredibly intense period and to some degree there was a bit of relief actually to be finishing yeah but relief but a tremendous sense of uh, a gap uh, because you know it's not like a job where you've done the you know bbc bulletin's gone out you now relax for 24 hours uh, you never relaxed in that job then suddenly it stops you wrote this book Unleashing Demons, which is a cracking read, I have to say. But you didn't pull your punches about your dissatisfaction with certain members of the Conservative Party, not least the Prime Minister who succeeded David Cameron. So you ruled yourself out of a job with the Conservative Party. Difficult to get back immediately into the BBC. Did you feel a bit lost? Um, not really. I, I, I felt... so. There's definitely you were asking the question about leaving the BBC for politics earlier. You definitely know, or I knew at that moment that I was burning my bridges and I could never go back to the BBC and probably never go back to broadcast journalism, really, because you've, you're tainted. You're associated with one political party, and again, I'm I'm fine with that. That that's the right thing. Um, then um, the reality is as well that you've been working 24-7, 365 days a year. The truth is you never have a day off when you're doing that job. That's, again, as it should be. I'm not complaining about it, but it has an impact on you. And I think it is a bit like metaphorically, and I understand metaphorically, being a bit like a, dr a drug addict who suddenly is being expected to go cold turkey. And I think it took me several months um, just to actually get back to a state of equilibrium, of getting used to the fact that the phone isn't ringing all the time, people are demanding your attention all the time, and that you're making decisions all the time. But it also you saw in situations like that. I haven't been in a similar one. I've been sacked twice by the BBC, and then Thames lost its franchise when I was there. And so there were these moments where the phone didn't ring and people would have lunch with you, but what do you do in the morning? You start to ask existential questions, particularly if you're quite a young man, as you are. Uh, you've decided to run this podcast, Desperately Seeking Wisdom. And I was intrigued about it in the sense it's fascinating, but also in, a, in the blurb about it, it seemed to come out a period of very significant unhappiness for you, or at least of you saying, what I've done, what I've achieved, what I'm doing is not making me happy. So I went into consultancy, um, which is basically advising CEOs, and that kind of thing on, on how they run the business and dealing with an incredibly volatile world and how they navigate it. And I did that for a few years. And that was a success. And, and look, other people be the judge. But, you know, I did pretty well in broadcasting. I lasted six years in government. I had established myself in a career um, of consultancy and that that was going well. So externally, everything looked great. But I realised inside that actually I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin and that actually I wasn't particularly happy. And although externally people would say, well, look, you're not, you haven't got any problems, that kind of thing, internally I felt I was struggling. And I think the part of me which had driven me to work so hard at the BBC, work so hard in government and in consultancy, there were issues about that. Why was I doing that? Why was I constantly pushing myself 
Uh, and why did I not feel happy? And when I started talking to people about it, I'm quite open, I spoke to a therapist, I also started talking to friends about it, that kind of thing, that, that they started opening up. And I was amazed the number of people who also felt exactly the same. And when I was vulnerable with them and told them how that I was struggling and that I found certain things difficult, that they would open up and tell me about difficulties they'd had. And I realised that, that what the world needs is more people actually being open and honest about that kind of sense and feeling. So I thought, how can I do this? I know quite a lot of people. Um, and why don't I do a, pod- a podcast on that? So I started by talking to George Alagaya, who was a very loved friend who sadly died last year of cancer. And then people like Richard Curtis, who I dealt with in Comic Relief, people like Amber Rudd, and it was amazing to hear them talk about how they'd struggled, what they'd learned. And so what I wanted to do was say, what have you learned from the ups and downs of life? What's the one piece of wisdom that, that you would pass on? And it's gone very well. We've just launched the third series this week. I've actually done Rory Stewart. Um, so you can go to anywhere you get podcasts and listen to that one. Um, he's very good and very interesting, very self-lacerating. Um, but also very good on what's wrong with politics and maybe what we need to do with it, but also about his own mental health and his own struggles. He actually talks at one stage about feeling so low after how he was treated by the media that he wanted to, he considered killing himself. And that's an incredible moment, you know, somebody just being so vulnerable and talking about that. And then how did they get through it? And what did they learn from that? Did you ever get that low? I never, I never got to the stage of, of, of seriously considering that. I did think, what is the point of this? Why am I here? Um, you know, it, it felt like I was getting up every morning and running a triathlon, exhausting myself and not feeling happy. And I started listening to quite and reading um, quite a lot of stuff and really tried to go quite deep in it. And there's a lot of snake oilsmen, oil salesmen out there who talk a lot of rubbish and come up with woo-woo nonsense. But there were also some very, very smart people. And there was a guy called Michael Singer who said, look, you get to live on the, the, the greatest planet in the known universe. It's beautiful. It's amazing. There's a huge amount of stuff going on. And yet, basically, all you do is bitch and moan. Why aren't you grateful for the fact that you're alive and that you are conscious? That is an amazing thing. Even if it all ends and you die and there's no more, that's an amazing gift. And I suddenly thought... Yeah, that does make sense. And actually, why aren't I more grateful? And why aren't I enjoying the fact that Roger Bolton calls me up and says, do you want to have a chat about the BBC? And I think, yeah, great. That's actually quite an interesting thing to do. Life's pretty interesting. Um, and, and when I sort of started looking at life in that way, I found that things went a bit easier on me. I stopped, tried to stop being so egocentric, focused on, um, you know, achieving goal, very goal-driven and much more, actually, I find that I can achieve stuff and it just be a much more gentle experience, really. I'll have to work at that. Um, one last thing I do want to ask you. When your old boss, David Cameron, who clearly had problems adjusting to life outside of politics, went in again and got the job of Foreign Secretary, did you cheer? I did, actually, because I'm very, very fond of David Cameron because I worked very closely with him for six years and... It is unusually close. You spend huge amounts of time with this person. You're in their office, lots of meetings, in the back of a car on the way to speeches or media events. 
actually the Downing Street flat was sort of an extension of the office. So you'd end up in his private personal space a lot, which I always felt must have been difficult for him. So you become very, very close to someone. And I think that he was, he's very good at, at doing that job. He's very good at being on the world stage. And I think, you know, he's re- reminded people of why he was actually a capable prime minister. And I think he probably needed that little reset moment. And I'm very pleased for him that he's had it. And one last question. I said that was the last question. But one last question about the broadcasting industry. You're looking, looking at GB News. Um, and you look at all the problems it's having with Ofcom and so on. Do you think it will succeed? And do you think it should succeed that we need GB News? Uh, I don't think we need uh, GB News. And I, that's not because I wish anybody out of a job or have any particular problem. Um, the reason I don't think we need it is I think that we need a space in this country where people are looked at or and they are trying to be impartial. That Going back to the beginning of the conversation, is something that will never be achieved. But actually, having a broadcast industry in this country that is trying to be impartial is a good thing. I often go to the United States and there is, I cannot think of a single journalistic outlet, online, print, broadcast, that is not coming at the world with an agenda. And I think that, that we, it's precious in this country. And I worry that in the broadcasting world that we're in danger of having sold the pass on that. And selling the pass on that, I think, ultimately is something that we will regret. Because what we're realising increasingly is we need sources of news that are at least trying to be impartial. And when you don't have that, you end up in a situation where there's an 81-year-old guy who's going to be the um, Democratic candidate for President of the United States and a 78-year-old guy who's the Republican candidate. Nobody really wants either of them. I think it's like 75% of Americans don't want this. And you end up in that kind of situation. And that is a pretty desperate situation to end up in. Greg Oliver, thank you very much. Thank you. Our thanks to Sir Craig Oliver. And remember, all our paid members will receive this podcast almost a week in advance. So if you want to hear it first, please sign up now to patreon.com forward slash bewatch. You'll also receive my blog every week. Total cost £1.99 per month. I hope you think that's a bargain. And that's it for this week. As you know, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quingenti. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.